cup for uh, my birthday. I haven't been able to fill it up hot and drink it all the way to the bottom and it still be hot yet. So I'm working on that. But anyway, I thought it'd be perfect to uh, bring out my new coffee cup for this new series we're doing for the next four weeks, Coffee Cup Verses. Um, so Coffee Cup Verses, what we're doing with this particular series is focusing on four verses in the Bible that are most quoted out of context, most quoted out of context, and it's putting them in context so that we can understand them the way the Bible wants us to understand them. And so last week, we uh, talked about the importance of reading the Word, and this next four weeks, we're going to do something, since we've talked about the importance of knowing the Word and reading the Word, um, then we're going to, for these next four weeks, talk about how to study the Bible, basically. So this is, these next four weeks are... uh, uh, a way for you to learn what's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. And so if last week we told you you should read the Bible, it's awesome. It's, it's going to change your life. This week, we're just going to take four little examples of, of, of ways you can, you can read the Bible incorrectly, uh, but then how to read it correctly. So we're going to use four examples. And so this week, we're going to look at, as one, one uh, guy says, the John 3.16 of American cultural Christianity uh, is Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11. So you, you can open your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. You have to come each week to know what we're going to do the next week. I'm not going to tell you. I already know, but I'm not going to tell you because I want you to like wonder and die to get here to, to hear stuff. So um, anyway, uh, after we're done with this particular um, after we're done with this particular series, it's just four weeks, then we will uh, go to Ruth. We'll be in the book of Ruth. Uh, as I said, these, these four weeks, we're going to look at Bible interpretation and then how to do that. Um, if, if you started your Bible reading plan, uh, you've already probably been reading some in Genesis, depending on what you're reading. I'm doing the chronological. I decided I'd try it out. So I've done some, some Genesis and Job over this past week. Uh, you're probably doing like Genesis... Psalms, Proverbs, and Matthew, depending on the, the Bible reading plan you're doing, I'm not sure. I would say uh, if you go to ESV, uh, if you have an, in the app store and you go to the ESV Bible app, this one's amazing. It, it does literally everything for you. You can go to the bottom and there's a little place where you can tell, tell the reading plans you want. There's like a bunch of them. Uh, I picked the chronological one. And if you click on it, you can actually click the day and then click the audio and it just reads it to you. So you literally can just put it down and you can just read, you can have it read it to you. The app does everything for you. Um, you have to listen and, and, and learn, but it doesn't do that. But otherwise, it does almost every single thing for you. So uh, Bible reading has never been easier. Uh, so I encourage you to be in the Bible this year. Uh, if it takes you a year or five years to read through the Bible, fine, or three days. But you should, you should read it every day um, because the Lord is going to show you the beauties of Christ in the text. So, um, since we're doing the art and science of Bible interpretation, I want you to really understand when you're reading how to interpret the scriptures. And so we're going to look at four different texts that are usually taken out of context to to give you an idea of what that might look like. Uh, Before we do that, though, um, I went back to some of my old notes and hermeneutics from seminary. And I just want to share a couple things. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but a couple things that's helpful to know uh, whenever interpreting the Bible. Uh, I've got eight things for you to know. Um, I'll go through these fast. The first one, I think, is maybe one of the most important ones. I remember hearing that, hearing this first one in hermeneutics and thinking, I can't be right. I can't be right. But I, I think it is, and it's, it's important. A text 
cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or his or her, read, his or her readers. It's probably one of the most important things. I'll say it a different way. Um, whenever the first century or, you know, before first century writer, author, whatever the author, whenever he wrote it, and the people that he wrote it to, those first century hearers or those first hearers, you know, before the first century, whatever it meant to them is the only thing that it can mean. So we can't, and our 19th, 20th, first century say, oh, it must mean this if it didn't mean that to them. Does that make sense? It has to mean, whatever the text means, it has to mean what it means to them first. Then it can mean something to us. What we shouldn't do is take our interpretation and say it must mean this. And it only makes sense that it makes sense to us in the 21st century and it not makes sense to them. So um, it has to mean, it has to mean uh, Whenever you're reading any kind of text, it has to mean what it means to them first before it means to us. A text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author, his or her, his or her readers. So it has to mean something to them first before it means something to us. That, when I first read that, I was like, that's, that's extraordinary. Because a lot of times we'll say, we'll read a text, we'll say, it must mean this. And if it didn't mean that to the first century writers, readers, then it didn't mean that. So what you should do when you're reading, like Jeremiah, what did Jeremiah mean here? And what, how did those first century hearers interpret it? Or if you're reading Luke, what did Luke mean when he's writing about John the Baptist? Uh, what is he trying to tell us about John the Baptist, etc.? Um, that's the first one. The next one is the context rules when interpreting the text. So whenever you're like Jeremiah 29, 11, which we're going to get to here in a second. I'll read the NIV, probably the most popular one that we've all heard. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So when you read that and you're like, oh, God loves me. He's going to prosper me. He's going to make things great for me. It says it right there. It's my promise. Um, well, the context rules when interpreting this text. And so when you read this in context, God's talking to Israelites that weren't even in Jerusalem more. Babylon had come and taken them over and they had been exiled out of their land. And he's telling them uh, that he has plans to, so, to prosper them. So when you read that, context always rules. Uh, another rule is that all texts, the text that you're reading must be interpreted in light of all scripture. Uh, so whenever you're reading something and you're wondering, what does this mean? It's always best to look at it in Jeremiah, in the context of Jeremiah 29, and then read Jeremiah 29 in the context of all of Jeremiah, and then read Jeremiah, all of Jeremiah in the context of all the rest of the prophets. Read all the rest of the prophets in the context of all the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Always make sure that you're, you're putting it in the right context whenever you're reading it, starting where you are in the chapter, the book, the, the genre, etc. Um, scripture, the next one is scripture will not contradict itself. If we're starting with the presupposition, like we started last week, that this is inspired by God, then scripture won't contradict itself. So when I see contradictions, it's not that scripture's got big problems. It's that I'm just, you know, messed up and I, I, I'm reading it wrong and I need to figure out why I'm reading it wrong. Does that make sense? Um, next one is scripture should be interpreted literally or, a little, or naturally according to its genre. So as you read the Bible... It's got tons of different genres from uh, literature or, or narrative to prose and poetry and all these kinds of different, different genres. And when you're reading poetry, um, like when we read poetry, we don't take it literally. Like we, it's, it's got some figurative nature to it. And so when you're reading poetry in the Bible, realize it's also got some figurative nature to it. You don't have to take it literally. Uh, but when you're reading narrative, 
then you should take it literally. And there's also the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. If you're reading narrative, usually it's describing the events. It's not prescribing what you should do. So when God says, Noah, build an ark, he's describing, Moses is describing what happened there. He's not saying to you, you should build an ark too. You're like, well, should I build an ark? He's building an ark. Should I build one too? So it's, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And usually it's helpful to make sure you know those different things. Um, Next one is do not develop doctrine from obscure or difficult passages. So like if there's an instance where this is only used once in 1 Corinthians where Paul said he went to the third heaven, but there's no other places in the entire Bible besides 1 Corinthians where the third heaven is mentioned, then we shouldn't build an entire theology around the third heaven because it's mentioned once and that's it. So uh, don't build doctrine from obscure, difficult passages. Go to other texts that are more descriptive. And if there isn't one, you just say, well, I don't know. It's okay. It's okay to say, I don't know. Um, discover the author's original intended meaning and honor that meaning. That's very similar to the first one, but the way to find, to find the meaning of text is what did the author mean when he wrote it and how did those, those first people hear it, those readers, and that's where we find the meaning. And of course, lastly, this is just an obvious one, is check your conclusions against reliable resources. So uh, whenever you have an a, a brand new interpretation that's never happened before, that might be good, but it might be really bad, right? You, you need to check and maybe go to some other commentaries and see what people that are way smarter than us thought. And if you're in line, then you're good. If you're not in line, then you probably won't, don't want to share it with too many people. Um, I'm just kidding. So anyway, looking at Jeremiah 29, for I'll read it in the ESV. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Or the NIV for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So that's been on lots of coffee cups, coffee cups all over the place or T-shirts or calendars or whatever. Usually it's taken as God really, really thinks I'm great and he's got these major, huge plans for me and they're always positive. They're never negative. They're always great. Uh, as Russell Moore commenting on this verse says, these words are the John 3.16 of American cultural Christianity. How often... Watch how often they show up on Bible verse, Bible verse plaques sold in uh, uh, the Bible Belt mall kiosks or posted on Facebook walls or even tattoos. Uh, whether uh, home decor or social media posts, I see this passage claimed fervently by a lot of people, um, Christian people. Naturally, the love for Jeremiah 29.11 has often led people that are a little bit more theologically oriented Christians to wonder what its real use is, and sometimes lament the out-of-context use of it. So much so that he has young Christians coming to him and saying, does Jeremiah 29 really even apply to me or not? What's the answer? Well, you'll see in a second. Um, so as I said, it's probably one of the most common coffee cup verses uh, ever quoted. And so the meaning of Jeremiah 29.11 cannot mean for us something totally different than what it meant for the Israelites who were exiled. Uh, and so in said another way, what's meant for the Israelite exiles is the only thing that it can mean for us. And I don't think that for them, it was a prosperity gospel message for the Israelites. So definitely it cannot be a prosperity gospel message for us. I don't think that's what it, meant, what it means. So uh, this story though is uh, an extraordinarily kind of similar microcosm to the story of Christianity. Uh, so let's find out what's going on in context. Here we're reading Jeremiah, start with 29.1. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. <clears throat> Just a reminder, um, they were a kingdom, and then they had divided into two kingdoms, 
And then people had come in and started destroying the kingdoms, and God had allowed the Babylons uh, to come in, Babylonians, I should say, to come in and take over this area. And as they did that, they took over Jerusalem. They weren't, Israelites weren't even ruling over Jerusalem or it wasn't theirs anymore. And they had taken some people out of Jerusalem and shipped them over to Babylon. They couldn't stand these people. They didn't like them at all. And they're having to live in their city with them. And so you've got some still in Jerusalem, some Israelites still in Jerusalem, and you've got some Israelites that have been taken out of their city. They don't even want to want to be out of their city. Uh, and they're being held captive by the enemy and being forced to live among their enemy. And so Jeremiah, he's in Jerusalem, and he writes a letter to those who are exiled uh, when they've been separated. So you can see in verse 29, verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests and the prophets and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was... Um, after King Jeconiah and the queen of mother and the eunuchs and the, official Judah, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, by whom Zedidiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So we, can, we got the kind of the big context here. Jeremiah wrote it from Jerusalem. He still gets to stay there to the exiles. And this is what he says. And if you, if you want to divide this particular uh, text here, we're going to look at starting at four, we're going to go down to 14. There's really uh, kind of two big things that's going to happen. Um, and four through nine, God's going to tell the people that are exiled, this is what you should do as exiles. And then at 10 through 14, this is the promise I'm making you. And 11's kind of nestled there in the little promise in 10 through 14. So you're going to see, this is what you should do now that you're in exile in 4 through 9. And this is the promise I'm making. So we'll read it all. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, to uh, all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice who, who is sovereign over all of this, right? Babylon had done something. Nebuchadnezzar thought he had won. But ultimately, God says, I have done this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have your sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. You're all exiled, but live there for a while, basically, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city. That must just be like, are you kidding me, God? Seek the welfare of this city. I can't stand these people or this city. Seek the welfare of this city, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Thus, for thus says the Lord of the hosts, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. We're going to come back to that. And you in my name, I did not send them, declares the Lord. That's what you should do. Verse 10 starts kind of the promise. For the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for, ba for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill, you, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. There's the promise. I'm going to bring you back. And here's what he says. For, finally in context, I know the plans I have for you. And this you, by the way, um, is not you individual. It's southern, so it's y'all. Read it plural. For I know the plans I have for y'all. So this promise, by the way, is never meant to be taken individually. It's always meant to be taken as a group, as the people of God. For I know the plans I have for y'all, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil 
to give y'all a future and a hope. Then y'all will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear y'all, y'all who seek me and find me when y'all seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by y'all, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather y'all from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring y'all back to the place of which I have sent you into exile. So we can get the full context of what's going on there. I think it's helpful to read it by, with saying y'all. All right, so um, the context what we're already talking about is that they've been exiled. Russell Moore brings a little bit more insight. He says, the book of Jeremiah is all about God disrupting his people's plans and upending his people's dreams. This verse comes in the context of a shocking message from the prophet. Those left behind in Jerusalem, anchored around the temple and the throne, assume that their relative fortune is a sign that God is for them. So everybody that's back in Jerusalem, they think God must really like us because we got to stay. Those poor people had to go. God's not really liking them. And so he says, uh, they assume that their relative fortune is a sign that God is for them, while those carted off into captivity into Babylon are seen to be under God's curse. It's not just those in Jerusalem who are tempted to think this way. Those in Babylon also think this way. Israel's God seems distant to those. Um, Israel's God seems distant to them, and they seem as though they have been raptured away from the promises. Yep, I probably need some batteries if someone's here. So uh, I'll talk loud. Uh, so it says, Jeremiah says, though, that God's judgment will fall on Jerusalem and uh, that God's purposes will spring to life through the exiles. This isn't good news for any of the hearers. The Jerusalem establishment chafes at this message and finds prophets who will say that peace is just around the corner. For the exiles, the message isn't a cheery one either. At least in the short term, in Jeremiah's letter to them, they're told that their return from exile won't happen any time in their generation, so they should just create new lives in Babylon. So it's not really good news for anybody at the time because they're told, you're going to stay here. I have plans for y'all who are in ex exile, but it's going to happen in 70 years. And so, here you go. Thanks, man. Anyway, so uh, as they're... As they're there in Babylon, the people that are that are exiled, they have really kind of one of three different choices that they can they can figure out. What are the three choices while they're in Babylon? They're they're in the midst of a city of people they cannot stand, and so they have a, a decision here. Now God tells them what to do in verse four through nine, but they're thinking to themselves, we have we have kind of one of big three picture choices that we can do. Number one, we can just get ourselves get ourselves off away from all the Babylonians because we can't stand them. And just have them be them and have them be pagans and stay away. And we can be here. That's the first thing. Or we can just immerse ourselves into the Babylonian culture. But as the people of God, when we immerse ourselves, immerse ourselves in a, in a way that we're so indistinguishable that we have entrenched ourselves into their culture. And you can't even tell the difference between us or them. Like we, you, you have no idea who we are versus who they are. So you can kind of see the two extremes. Either... Silo yourself off or entrench yourself, but entrench yourself in such a way that you aren't different at all. Or the third way, right, which is to be salt and light in this dark world. Live as God's unique people um, 
among them, but in such a way that you're different and you're uniquely linked in a society. You're uniquely different from them because you're the people of God, but you're also uniquely linked to them in, uh, in the society because you're also their neighbor and you're called to be there with them as salt and light. Um, one, one commentator says the gift of Jeremiah's prophecy was that God was going to build his city in the middle of Satan's city. Uh, said another way is his surprising plan for the redemption of the city meant that the city of God put the city of God smack dab right in the city of man. So these are kind of the three different uh, ways that they can approach it. And as they're going to it, I'm sure because they couldn't stand them, they wanted to just stay away from them. But God's not telling them that they should do that. God said that I have sent you from Jerusalem into Babylon. God sent them there. And so since God sent them there, they should think differently. Now, um, how does being called to a huge pagan city relate to us? What is it, how, how does it relate to us if the Israelites were sent to this big, huge pagan city? What does it have to do with us? Uh, a guy named Al Mohler, he's a seminary president at Southern Seminary. He says this, and I think it's super helpful for us to think of cities this way. He says, this much is clear. The cities are where the people are. In the, cor in the course of less than 300 years, our world will have shifted um, from one in which only 3% of people live in cities to which 80% are now resident in urban areas. If the Christian church doesn't learn new modes of urban ministry, we will find ourselves on the outside looking in. The gospel of Jesus Christ must call a new generation of committed Christians into these teeming cities. As new numbers make clear, there is really no choice. As Tim Keller says that the people of the world are now moving into the great cities of the world many times faster than the church is. So here's how this applies. God has sent these particular people to this huge pagan city in Babylon. And the things that he tells them to do apply to us pretty substantially because our, our culture is growing, growing, growing to where most people are moving into cities. And so the things that he tells them are the things that we can do as well in our cities because it's, it's a much more urban society than what we live in. So what happens then when the people of God move into cities, into population centers, and they live that third way as salt and light. What's historically happened in the history of Christianity when we've done that? Not when we've siloed ourselves off, not when we've immersed ourselves so much that we don't even look like Christians anymore, but whenever we've moved in as the people of God into particular places where there's a large amount of people that don't know God at all. There's this book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. This is what he says happens. Um, to cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity comes in and offers charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate base, basement, basis for attachments. This is what the history of Christianity has done around these particular places. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn down by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. People had been enduring catastrophes for centuries without the aid of Christian theology or social structures. Hence, I am by no means suggesting that the misery of the ancient world caused the advent of Christianity. What I am going to argue is that once Christianity did appear to these particular places, its superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems soon became evident and played a major role in its ultimate triumph. I want to make sure you hear that. Christianity, other than any other worldview in the world, when it comes into a major pagan place, Christianity 
has a superior capacity for meeting the chronic problems of that society. And it soon becomes evident that Christianity alone, more than any other religion or worldview, plays a major role in ultimate triumph. For what Christians brought was not simply an urban movement, but they brought a new culture. So we as the people of God, believers in Christ, whenever we go into these particular places, whenever we really entrench ourselves in, into these places, we have a, a, a more substantial change, we have a history, his, at least history tells us, than anything else. Because we are commanded by God to make sure when we're surrounded by homeless, impoverished, or newcomers, or strangers, or orphans, or widows, or just need in general, because we have the gospel to meet those physical needs and tell them about their greatest need spiritually, which is Christ. And so God's sending these people to spend their entire lifetime with these, with these pagans. And what does he tell them to do? So we can take notes of some of the things that he tells them. As I've said already, four through nine is what he tells them to do. 10 through 14 is the promise. So verse four um, through six, these are the, the four goals of Christians living in the city. Number one, there it is. Christians are to establish a real presence in the city. Look what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have sent you from exile into Jerusalem and Babylon. If that's true then, then it's true now. God has sent you where you live. God has put you where you are with the neighbors that you have, with the influence that you have, with the job that you have, etc. Where you, you might dislike your neighborhood greatly. You might love your neighborhood. You might love your job or not... You can't stand driving to Charlotte every day in the traffic. I don't know. But nevertheless, God has put you where you are sovereignly. And so when you're there, he doesn't want you to just kind of exist, get it done, fly back home to your, to your house and hang out by, with just your family. He wants you to do those things, but he wants you to do more. And this is what he tells the exiled Israelites in the middle of Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and... And have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So he tells them, you need to establish a real presence in this particular city. And so he tells them what presence looks like. Building houses, plan to stay there a while. Live in those houses, stay there. Plant gardens, be a part of the larger economy. Not just with just Christians, but with everybody. Be a part of the larger economy. Eat produce. Enjoy the good gifts that God gives you. Take wives. Get married here. Don't be in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem because you're not going to get back to Jerusalem. Stay there and get married. Not only that, have children. And as you have children, want you to have lots of children there in Babylon. Can you imagine just how that, that strikes them? Imagine what they're, they're being told. I mean, you've probably heard lots of times people say, I don't know if I can bring a children into this crazy world, etc." Feel the weight of what God's telling them. You're in Babylon. You're in your enemy's backyard. You can't stand them. And it isn't don't have children and stay away because things aren't going to be safe. Instead, he says, this is a place for you to have children and raise them right here in the middle of Babylon, which means for us, God's calling us to do the same thing. Now, at Remedy Church, we're doing a pretty good job and having lots of kids. Well, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Rock Hill's Babylon, but we, we do love children, which is great. But nevertheless, continue to pour into and have the next generation. And not only that, it says to give your, those children that you have into marriage. That's just saying, plan to be here a while, put down deep roots. So establish a real presence in the city. Establish a real presence in the city. So uh, I know that, you know, 
our life is like a mist, it's like a vapor, and you know, 75 years and boom, it's over, and 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000 years, we're finally in heaven. And it's easy to just say, well, I'm just, I'm living for that day, I'm just cruising through this or whatever. But in, in human years, right, 75, 80 years or whatever we get is a long time. It's a long time. And God's telling us, for the long time that you hear, Remedy Church, establish a presence in the city. Don't silo yourself off. Don't entrench yourself that you look so much. Be real salt and light and live with a real presence in this particular city. Get involved in all the local chapters of everything at, at Rock Hill. Whatever it is you like. Whether you like kayaking or snowboarding or collecting butterflies. I don't know. Like whatever it is you like. Find the people in Rock Hill, Christians and non-Christians that like doing that stuff, and be around those people and, and be a part of their lives. Have a real presence in the city. Have a real presence in the city. Not only that, look what it says. You can see number seven, uh, verse seven. Seek the welfare of the city. This word welfare, when we see it, is the word shalom. You can put up number two. Number two, Christians are to seek the shalom of the city. We're to seek the shalom of the city. Not just the welfare, but the shalom. So this isn't just meaning that we're supposed to break up fights around us and maintain like civility and, you know, not break laws. It means, of course, those things, but it means far more than that because for the Israelite to seek the shalom of the city. Imagine the Israelites being told to seek the shalom peace of Babylon. Seek the shalom peace of Babylon. Shalom is a rich term in the Old Testament. That's, it's the idea of filling out the community in such a way that you embrace the, the well-being, the contentment, the wholeness, the health, the prosperity, the safety and rest completely of the city. It's order, it's harmony, it's happiness. It's make everything right with the, with the city. It's comprehensive peace. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they lived in perfect shalom with God. And he's telling them, in this city, as best as you can in this broken world, seek the shalom of Babylon. Seek the shalom of Babylon. One commentator says, whatever shalom the Hebrews offered to Babylon, Christians are also able to offer a much greater peace to our postmodern cities. Whatever, uh, what we offer is eternal peace with God through the work of Christ on the cross. That peace is the basis for everything else we do in the city. It is what makes us neighborly, compassionate, compassionate and charitable. When the city finds peace with God, all will be well with the city. So only the church can offer this ultimate shalom through Christ. And so we, since we're already sent, just like them, should seek this in our city. Now, you're, it's never going to be perfect. And you're not going to build the kingdom of God like it's going to be in heaven. That's over-realized eschatology. That's trying to make it what it's going to be like be in heaven and making it here right now. That'll never happen. Never. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek that. It doesn't mean you shouldn't make where we live reflect, as best we can, the kingdom of God. So we do that. Jeremiah, one, one commentator says, Jeremiah's instructions here form a part of a wider biblical tradition that God's people can serve God by serving a wider society in various occupations. So it means that you don't have to just be a pastor in order to really have a true Christian vocation. Every vocation we have matters. Every vocation we have is a Christian vocation because we do it as a Christian. And so since that's the case, we can seek 
the welfare and shalom of our city and all of our avenues of our jobs because they all matter to God. I don't believe in the sacred-secular divide. I think that everything we do as Christians is sacred unto him. And so your vocation, though it seems like because you sell widgets and widgets don't feel like they, they matter and you can't even find a widget in the Bible and you're like, who cares that I sell widgets? I just sell widgets so I can make money for my family and provide for them and be a good Christian dad or wife or whatever. That's fine, but it does matter. It really does matter because how you sell those widgets matters. Like it matters as a believer in Christ, how you treat people, how you love people, how you, if you have employees, you take care of them, or if you are an employee, how you interact with your boss, how you, how you do everything matters. And what you, what you sell matters. Like people need that so that they can have life. And so you can seek the welfare of the city by being a good employee and working hard. And even if you don't have a paid job, that still matters, right? So even if you don't have a paid job, stay-at-home moms or college students that, you know, make peanuts, you, you, eat for, you work for ramen noodles or something, all that still matters. Um, everything you do in life matters, whether you're paid for it or not, because you can still seek the welfare of the city. You can seek the shalom of the city through your vacations, vocations and um, just by how you conduct yourself throughout throughout your entire life with every people around you. This is ultimately for Israel, who's exiled, a call to be on mission, a call that they are not just uh, citizens of only heaven, even though they are, as they await the Savior, but also citizens of the city, and God wants them to seek the shalom of the city. So second thing, Christians should seek the shalom of the city. Uh, Right with that in verse 7, you can see, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And then right after that says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. That's again, shalom. And you will find your shalom. So this third thing that we can see is that Christians are to pray for the prosperity of their city. Number three, it'll be up there. Christians are to pray for the prosperity of their city. Imagine as they hear this, the reaction of the Israelites who are exiled because of the Babylonians in this letter that they're told to pray for the city of Babylon. I can just imagine the reaction is, what? We can't stand them. You want us to pray for the city and it's shalom? How can you ask us to do this? It must have seemed impossible for them to think how, how they can do that. Chris Wright, when brilliant guy that talks about missional thinking, especially in the Old Testament. He says, prayer is a missional responsibility always. Or as Jesus says, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so the idea of praying for Babylon is, is totally biblical. For us, the idea of praying for our city, even though it doesn't necessarily reflect Christianity, it's still biblical. God wants us to pray for the prosperity of our city. And so when we say prosperity, we need to make sure we're being um, good, well-defined on what we mean by prosperity. It doesn't necessarily just mean that we grow richly financially. Like everything, everybody's loaded, everybody's got a good retirement package, and everybody's got a good bass boat. That's not, I mean, that's not exactly what it means, right? Sure, it can mean that in some ways, but we're not talking about a prosperity gospel here, that everybody gets rich and God wants us rich. We also mean prosperous in Christ, so that we pray for the prosperity of our city in many ways, like uh, 1 Timothy 2, so that we can, because of that now, 
have a city to where we can, as Christians, live in here and we can preach the gospel faithfully as well. So prosperity also means just that there's people here and as there's people here, we can live our lives as Christians in a faithful way telling people about the gospel. And so he commands them to pray for their city and their enemies because obviously as they do that, God changes their heart to care for those people around him. God changes their heart to care for his city. So, So take that task up this week. Take that challenge up this week. Pray for your people around you that are difficult. Pray for your city around you and see what God does with your heart. See that if God doesn't change your heart for the people around you and you start caring about them more and you want to talk to them about Jesus more, you want to be their friend more. Pray for your city more and see if God doesn't start changing your heart that you want to see the prosperity of Rock Hill, York County, you know, whatever city, town you live in grow. So that's the first thing, or that's the third thing we should see is that we pray for... uh, We pray for the city as well. And when I say pray for the city, of course, I mean the people in the city. All right, last thing is this. Um, You can see it in verse 8 through 10. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they're prophesying to you. So what what happened here is some guy had come to the exiles and says, hey, I know you think you're going to be here a while, but I got good news. Actually, you get to get out of here quick. You don't have to stay here in Babylon. You get to go back to Jerusalem really soon. It's going to be awesome. You get to leave really soon. And so God's saying, that was a lie. <laughs> you're actually not going to get to leave soon. Uh, you're going to be here a long time. Don't listen. If you, re- if you look at Jeremiah 28, 15 through 17, you can see in Jeremiah, the prophet said to prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. You, you lied to them. They're not going to be here for a long time. I mean, for a short time. They're going to be here a long time. And so I didn't send them, declares the Lord. And then you can see in the promise, when 70 years is complete, you're actually going to be here a long time. You're going to be here for 70 years. So since that's the case, that brings us to our fourth time, fourth one. The goal of living in the city is this. Uh, It's similar to what we've been seeing. Christians are to live on mission for their lifetime. Since you're going to be here for 70 years, since you're going to be here for a long time, then... You should plan on living on mission the entire time you're here. Your mission is for your entire life. It's not for a season. It's not for a small period of time. It's not for you while you're young. It's not for you to wait while you're not young and you're finally old and you have more time, you think. It's your whole time. It's your whole life. When you're new Christian, when you're young, when you're middle-aged, when you're old, the entire time, whatever it is, plan on being there the whole 70 years and plan on being on, on mission the whole 70 years. Is basically what he's saying. Your mission is for your entire lifetime. As one of my old seminary prophets used to say, life is a mission trip, take it. Life is a mission trip, I like it. He, I liked him a lot. Life is a mission trip, take it. And sometimes it's like when we're, if you think about that, I mean, when we're on the mission trip and we're there in Honduras or we're there in Canada or wherever we are, the whole time we wake up, I'm like, this isn't familiar so I'm on mission trips, and you, you're, more, you're more likely, I've been on a mission trip to Canada and Honduras, that's why I picked those. Not that Canada really, really needs Jesus. It might, but anyway. Like, so when you're there, you're thinking, here I am, this is unfamiliar. I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to read my Bible and pray. I'm really into it. And he's saying, well, your whole life is that. So even though you might wake up in familiar places, your own bed each time, you still wake up saying, I'm on a mission trip today. I'm going to tell people about Jesus today. I'm going to go to these particular places today. And Lord, give me a chance to tell somebody about Christ today. Give me a chance to love love them. Give me a chance to serve them. Give me a chance to talk to them. 
Anyway, verse 10. Um, so now we've moved over to the promise. For the Lord says to them in the promise, uh, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed uh, for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So there's the promise. And then he's gonna, then we're gonna get into it. So the promise is you don't have to stay there forever, but eventually you're going to come back. He tells them the promise. Now, uh, Philip Ryken says this, a quick note regarding how this verse can be misunderstood. When God's saying he knows the plans he has for y'all, it's important to understand whom he means by you. Christians often apply Jeremiah's promise to them individually. They say, God knows the plans he has for me. This is awesome. This shows how self-centered the Bible reading can be then. Jeremiah's promise should not be taken individualistically. That's a tough word to say. It is not a private promise. Instead, it's for the entire church. The you and the plans I have for you refers to plural, the whole people of God. Before thinking about the promise means for you, you should always think about what the promise means for us. Little hermeneutics 101 there, right? What is, what is the Bible, what is it in context? It's plural. So what does the Bible mean then for us? And what does the Bible, what does this promise mean for Israelites in Babylon first? And once we figure out what that meant for them, then we can figure out what it means for us. So, in Jeremiah's case, the promise of return was for a whole community of exiles to be brought back to Jerusalem. In this case, uh, in the case of the church, the promise of salvation in Christ is for the whole community of believers. So this promise is for great plans from God to, given to a suffering people, exiled for the consequences of their own sin. They were exiled because they had sinned against God. It was all of their own doing, and they did not like being there, and they were wanting to leave. So, uh, the kingdom had, that, the, that they had, the Israelite kingdom had come and gone for them, and it wasn't necessarily going to be restored like they thought, and they were about to enter what's known as the quiet period, the 400 years of God between the Old Testament and New Testament where he didn't speak to them. Uh, one commentator says, this is a surprising word of hope to a people who stood under God's judgment. Even in and through the fires of judgment, there can be hope in the grace and the goodness of God. So this promise is in the midst of a lot of Horrible things that are happening to them because of their own doing. And now here's the promise. Um, re read the whole thing. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So he's telling the exiles this. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Let's just try to figure out what this means in the context. What would be this promise that God's telling the exiled Israelites? What would it mean? Does it mean that Things are just going to be great. Everybody's going to get, you know, dune buggies. Or, like, the, the plans are great. You're, you're going to get into the college of your dreams, and you're going to marry that, that person that you've always wanted to. For I know the plans I have for you, they're awesome. They're going to be so great. Plans to prosper you. Let, let's look what he says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. They were exiled because of their own evil, and you're going to give them wholeness now. To give you a future and a hope. Then, watch this, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. I will start hearing you when this happens. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Now that's Pretty amazing promise. If you hear all the things that God's planning to do, he's going to give them wholeness, future, hope. 
They're going to start calling on him. They're going to come and they're going to pray to God. God's going to start hearing their prayers. They're going to start seeking God. And when they do that, they're going to actually find God. When they do it, they're going to do it with all their heart. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. He's going to restore their fortunes. And he's going to gather the nations back to them, back to where they are. So what does this sound like when we hear it? Does this sound like God has this secret future plan that you're always going to get the job you always wanted? Does it sound like that God knows the days that he has for you um, and he's counting them and his plans are finally going to happen? You just save the date for it because it's going to be awesome. Does it sound like he's got this future plan for life for you that you've always happened? I don't, because we can't take it individualistically. Instead, it's y'all, this is the people of God. This talking to Israel of all these plans he has for them for wholeness and future and hope and them being the people of God and restoring them back to Jerusalem. This sounds like great gospel news given to his people. It sounds like the good news. It sounds like as we read the Bible, the good news of Jesus. Um, Chris Wright says, you should notice the gospel of these verses contained in the verbs, then you will and then I will. The movement of God's people's heart to seek God in itself is a gift of God's grace, even while it is a necessary condition in which they receive his grace. In other words, God's grace gives what God demands. God's making massive demands on us to be the people of God, all of which we cannot fulfill. But God's grace is giving you the ability to actually fulfill all the demands that he makes. That's all good news. So it means that they will. So if we're looking at it, what does it mean then? It means for the Israelites that they will eventually leave exile physically and be able to make it back to Jerusalem. Does it mean that for us? No. <laughs> we, don't live in we don't live in Babylon. And so that's, that's, that, that's not what it means for us. But it has a second meaning for them. Not only physically will they leave exile and come back to Jerusalem, but it also means that they will leave spiritual exile and that they will be restored. They'll be forgiven of their sin and restored as the people of God and all the nations will be invited into this good news. Does it mean that for us? Which one am I picking? Which one sounds like most like it, it applies to us? It means that. The second one. The latter one. So when we look at this, it's not a magical verse that God has these great things for you. Instead, as it meant for the first hearers, it's either physical exile back to Jerusalem or the great spiritual gospel exile. Well, it can't mean the first for us because we don't live in the back then. So it must mean the second, which means for us when we read this, this is a, an amazing gospel promise, not just for them, but for us. God's telling you, that he is going to make you whole, that he does have a great future for you one day in Christ, that you have a hope now and that you can call on him, you can come to him, you can pray to him, he hears your prayers and when you seek him, you will find him and you will seek him with all of your heart. And again, you are incapable of that, but God's grace provides what God's grace, what God demands to us and you'll seek him and you'll find him and then he's going to bring us one day to our eventual one day great Jerusalem Zion and that he's going to restore all of the good news of the riches of the gospel to us, the fortunes. And as he does that, he's going to gather all the ethne, all the nations into this great gospel. So when we read Jeremiah 29, 11, go all the way down to 14 and you get the fullness of the promise that's not just made to the Israelites, but it's made to us. And we read it, we're like, that's for me too. And it's all available to me in Christ Jesus. 
Because we've been exiled from our sin, he's promised that for those who seek Christ will find Christ. He'll make them whole. He'll give them a future. He'll give them a hope. And all it takes for you is to call upon Christ. You'll be found by him when you seek him with all your heart. And then he'll bring you out of the place that you've been exiled, all of us, and all the nations will be taken off of our pathway towards hell and set on the right path towards heaven. And the riches and the fortunes of God will be given to us. And we will seek him with all of our hearts. Glory, hallelujah that the Lord loves us and would do these things for us. Amazing, amazing. If you don't know Christ, Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart that one's believing is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and it saves. So his plans, as Jordan introduced this song several years ago, his plans are still to prosper us. He hasn't forgotten us, but to prosper us in Christ by forgiving us of our sin and allowing us to join with him to reach our city and do the things that he told us to do in four through nine. Live on mission and call more people into this great promise provided to all the ethne, all the nations. And they're coming to us now, coming to us, provided for us, and call them into that great promise of 11 through 14. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your good news. Thank you so much that every verse in the Bible is about Jesus and his great redemption.